welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. I'm your host, Jason Dressel, and today we're going to talk about, among other things, what my guest refers to as the intersection of business savvy and peace building wisdom. So I guess today we have a proverbial traffic grid of conversation. And this episode of History Factory Plugged In takes on a complicated topic, and you're going to hear what I hope you'll consider to be a thoughtful conversation about some complex issues. We're talking about how companies and brands grapple with aspects of their past that are inconsistent with today's ethics and standards and a lot of the associated implications. Joining me today to talk about this both through a historical lens as well as what we're seeing play out in real time and the role that global enterprises are playing in the Russia invasion of Ukraine is Dr. Sarah Fetterman. I first connected with Sarah after reading an article she wrote that appeared earlier this year in the Harvard Business Review called How Companies Can Address Their Historical Transgressions and subtitled Lessons from the Slave Trade and the Holocaust. Sarah also gave testimony last week at the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services hearing entitled An Enduring Legacy, The Role of Financial Institutions in the Horrors of Slavery and the Need for Atonement. Now, one thing that I hope you'll have a deeper appreciation for after listening to the conversation with Sarah is that these are complicated matters that rarely have cut and dry cases of right and wrong. And I think the conversation that we have illuminates that companies shouldn't be afraid of their history. As Sarah and I talk about, this isn't something that should just be handled as either a legal risk or a PR problem. What's important is understanding where you've come from, how you've adapted and grown, acknowledging what mistakes you've made or how you've evolved as an organization, and what you can take with you to the future. And I think what Sarah also shares is how companies can be a healing force for longstanding societal pains as part of that process. In our conversation, you'll hear me reference a study which History Factory undertook in the summer of 2020 when we saw a turning point with many companies and brands taking stronger steps toward racial equality and backing it up with more actions, including several companies changing the names of brands associated with racist iconography. And the study was informed by an independent survey that was conducted eliciting input from CEOs and other members of the C-suite, as well as institutional investors and consumers. So if you are interested more in this topic and that study, you can access the report in these show notes or access the previous episode we did in 2020 called Perils of the Past, which was episode 23. So with that, Dr. Sarah Fetterman is an author, educator, and conflict resolution practitioner who is currently an assistant professor of negotiation and conflict management at the University of Baltimore and a Fulbright Peace and Conflict Resolution Specialist. She is the author of the book Last Train to Auschwitz, The French National Railways and the Journey to Accountability, as well as other various publications. And I very much enjoyed our conversation. Sarah Fetterman, welcome to History Factory Plugged In. Thanks for joining. So great to have found you and to be here today. Yes, uh, Sarah, we 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 met uh, just uh, just I guess a, a month or two ago uh, when your article "How Companies Can Address Historical Transgressions" was published in Harvard Business Review. So, congratulations again on, on a great you. article. 
And um, and this is a a topic that uh, that we've talked about on this podcast previously, and as you and I have talked about before this conversation, it's an area of of work that we here at History Factory are engaged in, and, and it's a topic that I personally just find very fascinating. And I I, I, I want to start with you know when you and I started talking, uh, I I found that you were um, actually uh, in a previous life you were an executive at a global uh, SaaS and media company. And here you are 10 years later, uh, an academic with a focus on negotiations and conflict management. So um, I guess I'll start with how, how how did this career path unfold? And is it what you might have expected 10 years ago? Yeah, I, I actually feel that I fell into business, but it was so interesting to travel around the world and and meet with top advertising agencies and media sales houses like Google and meet with NFL and meet with Bloomberg. And I was just kind of amazed at the experience, but it was a job transfer to Paris from Manhattan that actually kind of led to this change. When I had uh, about, when I was moving to Paris, I had told my undergraduate history advisor, and I don't know if any of you stay in touch with your professors, but I found it a really valuable relationship because here I was foot 10 years later saying, hey, I'm moving to Paris. And he says, hey, when you get there, would you find out if those French train drivers kept their jobs after the war? And I, <laughs> so I said, okay, you know, but when I first got to Paris, I was just kind of focused on Paris, right? There's just so much to consume and there's language to learn and friends to make and all of, of that. Uh, but as I started to move around France uh, and visit like the trenches of Verdun from World War One, visit the rest of Europe, and I started to see the impact of the world wars in a way that I had never really understood in school. You just can't until you're like standing in Germany, you know, at the checkpoint, Charlie, you're standing in Verdun, you're standing, you know, at the death camps. And there were just a few moments, um, little by little, that began to turn me kind of more towards her, his question. But there was one defining moment, and that was I was in Paris uh, rollerblading along the Seine on Sunday, and I went to get some falafel in the Marais because it's one of the few places open to get some good food uh, on a Sunday, and I passed the Holocaust Memorial, the Shoah Memorial, and I just wanted to see if any Fettermans had been taken. I have a very common Jewish last name, but what I didn't expect to see was a Sarah Fetterman written exactly the way my name was written on my apartment in Paris embossed in the wall. And it just reminded me of his question in a very different way. Like, oh my God, that would have been me. Like if I, you know, it would have been my family. So I said, all right, let me figure out what happened to those train drivers. So I I enrolled in a master's program uh, part-time. And then I set about kind of poking at the, the archives and then little by little. And that led to the book, The Last Train to Auschwitz, The French National Railways and the Journey to Accountability which is where I worked in the archives of the SNCF. I met with SNCF executives. uh, And then I interviewed 90 Holocaust survivors because there were active lawsuits in the United States, actually, first in France, then the United States, and legislation trying to keep this train company out until it made amends. So what I ended up doing is a master's, a PhD, and like a really deep dive into this one company, which then led me into this larger conversation that we're having today beyond the trains. And... What is what is the work that you're doing now? I'm curious what the connection is between um, the the role of business and historical transgressions and 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 negotiations and conflict management. Um, how do those yeah. how do those two reconcile? 
Yeah. Well, there's actually three pieces of that. You know, I studied negotiation when I was in business because I was in sales. So they sent me to, you know, Harvard negotiation program and I wasn't very good at it in part because I had all these like moral concerns that were not part of the case studies. And, but it, it kind of stayed with me. And I thought, I don't know, you know, was the Missouri compromise really a good compromise? You know, yeah, we staved off war for a few years in the United States, but it allowed slavery to perpetuate. So I was kind of like gnawing on these questions. And when I started to get back into grad school in Paris and started to study international affairs and then conflict resolution as a field, I learned about something called transitional justice, which is how, how countries and people move advance in the aftermath of mass atrocity. How do you move forward in, in the in irreparable harm? So what I started to see during my doctoral program is the peace people don't really like talking about businesses. <laughs> They're not comfortable talking about business. I don't know if they don't like business. That's why they went into peace studies. I don't know if they distrust capitalism or corporations generally as kind of a, an evil. And I'd come from the corporate world and I thought, well, corporations really have a role in all of this. And I'm really interested in that intersection. So kind of wrote my own mission statement because I think mission statements are useful. I'm uniting business savvy with peace building wisdom because they each have something to offer. Peace building needs some business savvy to keep going. <laughs> and, you know, I think uh, business could use a little bit of the peace building wisdom. And that's the intersection I think we're talking about today. Got it. Well, that's that's a, a great and, and really creative um, way that you've obviously been able to combine your, your experience and, and passion. And what taking a step back to to your um, to your your work with the French Railway, um, what what were some of the kind of key learnings from that experience? Before we talk more broadly about this whole topic of what mm. uh, we at History Factory have sort of talked about in terms of um, uh, the perils of the past, if you will, um, yeah. but what were some of the key things that you learned in all that research that you conducted? That's a great that's a great question. One thing I learned, which is very applicable to other situations today, is that the SNCF, the French National Railways, had 500,000 employees during the war, about 500,000. Wow. That's half a million people, more than all of the US airlines combined. Today, they don't have as many because it's not driven by coal, so it doesn't you know, require as many workers. But if you imagine coordinating 500,000 people without email, with really risky trains, complicated train routes, and what I discovered, maybe unsurprisingly, is that the company played many roles during the war. It was a victim of the occupation. It did not ask the Germans to come occupy. It did not say, can we please you know, work on your behalf? Uh, many of their materials were destroyed, right? It wasn't a number of their workers were deported for forced labor. It wasn't profitable like the war was for Hugo Boss who made Nazi uniforms. Like this wasn't a good time for the train company. Though some use it to their personal advantage overall. But it was also um, a perpetrator in the sense that it had a role in deporting 70, about 76,000 Jews to the border where another train driver took them to Auschwitz, but in these horrific conditions that many people already know about, you know, in these rail cars. Uh, so that was, that was about 80 convoys of those trains. So, and about 3,500 came back, but it became known as a hero after the war because there were a number of workers about 0.2% of those 500,000 um, who were actively involved in the resistance, but people did things. They slowed down trains. They tried to get water to the survivors. Some in Lille actually helped them, uh, all these babies, they took them all out of the, um, the rail cars and were able to save them. 
So there were ways, but the SNCF became storied as a hero for 50 years after the war. It kind of that singular story lasted because of the role it played in D-Day. And part of the reason that the Germans couldn't get their footing when the allies were coming is that the some of the SNCF workers were working the resistance to sabotage the rail lines. They sabotaged their own trains so that the Germans couldn't get their armaments to that coast. And that was a pretty big deal. And some of that footage was preserved. They made a movie out of it after the war. And then it became SNCF the hero. And the SNCF had a role in constructing that image, as did the government and as did the French people. Uh, so that was the history that was very interesting. And then, you know, if you want to hear more about kind of the conflict and how it unfolded, but I can tell you just very briefly that survivors don't agree on what they want. You know, they, they, they have different needs. They were impacted in different ways. Um, so yeah, we can talk more about that, but that's, they're complicated conflicts, especially when the living, those who did the deeds are dead becomes mm complicated. Yeah. Well, and it's such a complicated um, challenge for, for companies and brands, because as, as I often say, an organization is reflective of the time in which it existed, right? And, and um, whether it be European companies coming to terms with their involvement or complacency during the rise of Nazism and the Holocaust or companies association with the slave trade or, or neocolonialism or any other host of, of atrocities. Um, there's all kinds of, 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 of things that, that organizations are, are reconciling with. And I'm curious, based on your work, if you see a, a pattern of how these companies, particularly their executives tend to react to um, both the awareness of these um, past transgressions as, as you frame them and how they tend to react to the public criticism. Yeah. I mean, I think executives are very accustomed to taking on their role and having to deal with certain problems from their predecessors, maybe a failed product line, maybe an office that isn't performing, some troublesome employees that no one dealt with. Um, you know, they're, they're used to that uh, new, you know, mistakes made in the past. I think there's a knee-jerk reaction when it's so long ago. It feels like hundreds of years ago that it feels inappropriate. And the knee-jerk reaction is the, why should I have to deal with this? You know, I wasn't there. Well, you weren't there for the you know last problems either, but these somehow feel more of a burden of, wait a minute, like, especially when the survivors, like the victims are no longer living. It feels like I've been made not just have to deal with these problems, I'm being turned into a perpetrator. You know, I'm having to embody this role of slaveholder or, you know, colonizer or Nazi, which is such a horrible feeling. Like you, that's how you're being positioned, right? Because you now symbolize that to, to those who are critiquing the company. So it gets sent to the legal department and the PR department, usually first. Legal departments prepare for war, right? <laughs> that's kind of what they're doing, right? The, they want to know the history so they can prepare their defense. And then the PR department tries to kind of make a statement and kind of spin it. But that actually, in both cases, makes it worse often, if that's the first reaction. Because the legal we need a more restorative approach first. And that begins with being transparent. And some of the work you know that I think you're involved in, too, with understanding what actually happened. Right. Like, hold on. And this is why it's important to do it before you're sued, because then you're having to like 
do all this and play catch up. Um, but if you can understand your history, engage your own employees in this process, especially if they are descendants of those groups that were harmed, because they're yeah. not going to buy your DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion statement, if you won't deal with the fact that half the profits initially came from slavery, you know, um, plantation agriculture. So there's kind of an authenticity there. So I would say uh, to hold on to those approaches that work well, maybe in other situations, uh, this is a slightly different animal. This is the peace building wisdom part of it. That's different. Yeah. Yeah. And your points are, are interesting. And, and in many ways they've been consistent with a lot of what we've encountered historically, but um, it was interesting because uh, as we've talked about uh, for the first time, we actually conducted some research around this topic uh, in the summer of 2020 uh, during the um, period, of course, of uh, George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matter and the, the huge response uh, that, that corporations uh, uh, took and really the, the, the you know, the outcry that the, the companies and brands uh, took during that period. And one of the things that struck us about that, and then of course, I should add, that also led to a number of companies and brands taking actions that they had historically been resistant to take. So you saw, uh, you know, brands like Aunt Jemima, uh, which I believe was uh, owned by, or is owned by, by, by Pepsi. Um, I hope I got that right. Um, uh uh, Uncle Ben's, uh, which is a, a Mars brand, um, uh, of course, you know, ultimately even, you know, the Washington football team, you saw all these organizations go further than they had previously gone with respect to making adjustments. Um, and so when we did that research, it was interesting because we actually were surprised to learn that one of the questions that we asked of executives was, do you feel like there should be an accountability um, for um, for past actions that are, as we defined them, inconsistent with today's ethics and mm -hmm. standards. Mm -hmm. And I think in the report, which we can link to in the notes of this podcast, I think the report, I think something like 48% actually agreed. Um, and so it was a higher, it, it indexed higher than we would have expected. Um, now, granted, we didn't specify how they should, mm -hmm. <laughs> how they sure. should take accountability. Sure. Um, but yeah. there, there seems to be, and again, we don't have the data to compare what that number might have been 10 or 20 years ago. Um, but whether it be, you know, the fact that executives of Oregon, of Fortune 500 companies are now younger, or obviously, uh, you know, everything that's happened over society over the last several years, and, and likely a combination of both. Um, there actually is, I think, more of a, um, uh, there is seemingly more of a, a momentum of executives leaning into this and recognizing that they have to take some accountability, yeah. albeit, you know, how that's defined. Whereas sure. I think to your point, historically, we certainly saw more that the initial sort of reaction was often, you know, you know, let's, let's try to kind of bury this, if yeah. you will. Yeah, that's a big change. That's a really yeah. big change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was interesting too, right? Because um, in the survey, 76% of C-suite executives said they know about practices in their company's past that, that conflict with today's ethics and standards. And we define that as instances of racial injustice, financial improprieties, sex or gender discrimination, or supporting potentially divisive social uh, or political causes and yeah. environmental negligence. Um so, sorry, go ahead, please. Just part of that is uh, a good sign 
<laughs> because it ah. means on some level, our society is becoming more caring, right? We're yeah. making other mistakes that are going to create problems for, for future people. But uh, that's actually nice to know, right? Because it means that how the company was behaving is now something that the company no longer does, which is a good sign. Yeah. And I think, again, when you talk about, you know, corporate social responsibility, uh, again, I wish we had done this kind of uh, research a decade ago. It'd be very interesting to see how it's comparing now. Um, But certainly a lot of the responses that we saw, at least, you know, did seem to demonstrate that executives are taking some accountability, at least philosophically and 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 recognizing that these are are real issues that they have to grapple with and and part of the reason why we did the research was we were you know just curious whether this was really a topic that is on their minds uh or was this just something that you know all of us mm-hmm. fellow travelers in this field think about um but uh, you know and one of the other things we talked about Sarah that I wanted to get your perspective on is how what we're seeing play out in the Russian invasion of Ukraine may compare to what we've seen um, um, historically with respect to these other sort of geopolitical and military conflicts we've been talking about. Um, do you have any perspective on um, on how companies and brands are responding to, to what's playing out now in Ukraine? Yeah, we're, we're seeing an enormous uh, withdrawal. So Jeffrey Sonnenfeld and the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute's been tracing about 500 companies that have pulled out of Russia. I mean, that's a huge amount of numbers. There are there have been so many conflicts and are ongoing conflicts around the world where companies are not pulling out. So maybe the question, you know, is is why this one? Um, and there's tons of regimes that are that are questionable right now. Uh, so why this? And you know, I first think back to apartheid in South Africa or apartheid South Africa, when there was a legislated sanctions where companies had to pull out, right? That was a legislative decision that wasn't initiated by the corporate sector. This is quite different. So why is this different? Well, one, um, there's a large collective memory of the Cold War. There's high visibility for this. I mean, people remember there's World War II and the Cold War is in the collective memory of the the United States, right, and Europe. So it's like it's happening again. And there was a lot of visibility of corporations that were involved in the Holocaust, especially in the 1990s. And now corporations are very cognizant of how they're going to be perceived uh, in this conflict, right? No one's watching what they're doing in Tigray and Myanmar. I mean, some are, but it's not getting the same attention. Yemen. I mean, there's lots of places that that we can that we can look at um, of concern. But I think there's a collective memory around it. You could say that there's a race component. Um, you know, it's white people. That's one way to say it. It's also an invasion we understand, right? Syria was complicated. Like, wait, who who's doing what and who's on whose side? And I think there's a clarity about this one. We've gone through World War One, World War One, World War Two, the Cold War. Like, we know this one. <laughs> um, and so there's a there's a part to play. So yeah, about 500 are, are withdrawing. And there's other actions that they're taking as well, which we can talk about those that aren't withdrawing. Yeah, it's, it's, those are all really great points. I think the other um, the other aspect of this, and I, and I don't I don't know if this is, is fair or not, but you know, it kind of continues a theme of the, the last podcast uh, uh, we had here on History Factory Plugged In, where we talked about the communication strategy of this. And part of this is that, um, you know, 
Ukraine and, and Zelensky in particular, of course, has been so savvy in how he has really waged a, you know, communications war and, and, and has really, you know, made them, uh, to your point, you know, undoubtedly, uh, you know, the, the, the victim, uh, of the, of, of, of the conflict. Um, but I tend to agree with you as well. I think that yeah. the, the fact that it's also playing out in, in Europe and, and there are seemingly less, less shades of gray. I think all of those are, are factors. Are helpful. And with, you know, Zelensky, he called on the business leaders. He says, step up and do something. But so did Richard Branson, who was meeting with different business leaders, getting them to admit that they were not for the invasion, but not getting them to be willing to do it publicly. And so we're seeing a kind of corporate diplomacy emerge that's been there for a long time, but it's now much more visible, these dynamics. Even uh, the tweet requesting Musk to deliver Starlink so that the Ukrainians could have internet access you know, that's a very um, that's not just helping humanitarian aid. That's actually helping the, the war effort. Right. Allowing them to communicate, you know, but nobody's all one thing because then you have Tesla opening up showrooms in the Xinjiang province. You know, So like the SNCF, these are complicated during World War Two. This is a uh, complicated characters. Yeah. So what's your what's your advice to go, going back to kind of the historical piece? And, and it's interesting to think about in that context, right. That, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, companies will look back and, and we'll all look back and see how, how, um, how they responded to, to this particular, um, incident between Russia and Ukraine. Um, but going back to the historical component, what's your advice to executives who may be uneasy about their company's involvement with past actions, um, that are clearly inconsistent with today's ethics and standards? Well, if your company's older than 50 years, that will just be the case. I mean, there have so much has changed. So it's not surprising. It's just it's just kind of what's so. I mean, people judge previous generations. So um, you want to, if you can take over uh, off the initial reaction, which is just to be like, why are they attacking me? Right. Of taking it personally. And that's that's hard to do, especially if there are plaintiffs who are coming at you and saying a lot of hateful things. But remember, the harm has been irreparable. I mean, especially with the Holocaust, like their whole other families were taken. Like I have a, a one of the women I interviewed. There's a name on her passport and a birth certificate. She doesn't even recognize. She doesn't even know who the person she was supposed to be. Right. That person's gone. She was given another name. And she's like, I don't even know who that is. And I was like, wow, that was a whole other life. Right. So um, doing the, the research, understanding it, um, and that I think you can safely say that Milton Friedman has been sidelined. You have 500 corporations pulling out of, out of Russia. There was a huge response to George Floyd. There are corporations pledging to reduce their carbon footprint. They're no longer saying that shareholders are the only, uh, you know, people that I have to speak to. Like there is an, an ethos now, an, an acceptance that corporations play a moral role in, in the world. Um, and I think embracing that and engaging the employees in that too, because most people want to feel good about where they work. I mean, there's going to be a few who just say, let me do evil and I can't wait. Um, but I don't think most executives, and that was, I think what I I could bring to the peace building world is that I had been in business and working with all kinds of people and they're not sitting there trying to be evil. You know, they're enjoying their jobs. They enjoy the challenge. They're 
caring for their families. Uh, and I think they would like to know that they're not harming the planet, killing somebody, you know, 10,000 miles away, um, supporting slave labor or, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. And as consumers too. Yeah. And I think as, as, as we often note, it, it's better to know than not to know. And, uh, and then what you do with the information obviously is, is a different piece, but, um, but knowing, knowing what the information is and, and, and leaning into it. The other thing that we found from our research is that a lot of the issues that um, executives are hypersensitive to are not necessarily the issues that consumers are as mm. hypersensitive to. Because to your point, they expect it. They assume that if your company has been around for over 50 years, hell, if your company has been around for maybe more than 10 years, then you know, then, then chances are there are some, obviously, um, there's going to be some some aspects of, of your past that are not reflective of, of who we are and where we are today as a society. And again, in what we found, which was interesting about the research, was somewhat not surprisingly, uh, and again, you have to put this in the context of we did this research in the summer of 2020, um, and it was specific to the United States, um, the C-suite was you know, hypersensitive to um, their um, their company's past actions that were um, mm. that were you know uh, uh, incriminating in terms of racial mm-hmm. injustice, and then they were also very hypersensitive to financial improprieties for obvious reasons. Yeah. But interestingly enough, um, consumers uh, they didn't they didn't have that same response. They didn't respond that um, companies or brands you know with a, a track record of you know racial injustice or really racist advertising or, or even, you know, um, Mm. uh, sex and uh, sex or gender discrimination. Mm. Those weren't the things that triggered them the most. What triggered consumers the most was action past actions supporting the divisive social or political causes and environmental negligence. Mm, And our interpretation of that was the reason why those issues are, uh, what, bothers consumers the most is because they see those as having sort of um, longer uh, longer tails in terms of their mm. consequences and are likely things that the company may still be engaged in. Ah, um, so kind of an interesting, yeah. an interesting twist one, on it. One great model is a recent article by the Baltimore Sun mm. where they make an apology and their apology for not just actually helping perpetuate slavery and Jim Crow uh, redlining, they go through and they do a beautiful job of saying, here's what we did here. Here's what we did here. There's different ways in which our institution contributed. And that's not who we want to be for our city. The really nice thing about this time in which we are and this process is that you get to define who you want to be because you're saying that's not who we are. Like, we don't want to be that. We want to help Baltimore thrive. And as with transitional justice, the idea of it is to help the new regime say that wasn't us. Now, when France did that after the war, the idea isn't that you don't take responsibility for the, you know, the harm, but that you say this is who, who we want to be, how we want to show up in the world. And that can be a really great team building part um, opportunity for the company as well. Yeah. Good, interesting discussion, and I think you know, I, I never, I never necessarily loved the the Mitt Romney, you know, 
companies are, are people too. But in, in retrospect, well, I've, I've appreciated yeah. kind of what he meant by it. And, you know, when you look at an organization as a, as a kind of living organism, uh, just like people, there are things from our past that we're proud of and things from our past that we're not so proud of. And I'd like to take it further, you know, his statement of corporations are people too, because they have rights, but not a lot of obligations legally mm. in the same way. So if you're going to be people too, like when you slap someone, there's going to be consequences, right? When you when you hire a military to protect your oil fields and they torture people, like there's consequences for that. So I think yes, but take it take it further. You know, law hasn't really caught up with this yet, and corporations know that, and they're kind of like hoping they can kind of make it through. <laughs> but you know, most of the Holocaust, transnational Holocaust uh, cases were settled because the courts didn't hold them, but PR wise, it's really damaging to be associated with major atrocities. Uh, but law follows public will. And if the public will keeps going in this direction, the courts will, they will turn. Um, yeah. Yeah. A, a great point. And, and I think what we're seeing certainly in our work is that um, there's, there's just more, more awareness of this and, um, and the risk may be legal it may be reputational it may ultimately be be both um but again um something for for organizations to be more aware of and and more proactive in terms of how they how they address and I, it i bet there are people in house who are wanting to have these discussions but don't know where to have them uh cuz people have told me you know i i work at this place and i i didn't know how to say it or but even just creating an opportunity for your employees to engage in the conversation um can be very helpful. It can be very helpful. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, Sarah, always, always a pleasure. Great, great conversation. And uh, look forward to having you on the podcast again soon. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Sarah Fetterman for that great conversation. And just to build on what we were talking about in the context of Ukraine, the Yale School of Management is tracking a list of over 1,000 companies that is being monitored by uh, the professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld and his team, uh, their research fellows and students at the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. And over 600 companies as of April 11th have pulled out of Russia and withdrawn or suspended operations. And that response, I believe, is in part because of the stronger sense of corporate social responsibility the companies have. But it's also because what we're seeing play out in Ukraine is a horrific atrocity that is mobilizing governments, NGOs, and global businesses really like like no other uh, crisis uh, in our, our recent history. Uh, it's just far more clear cut in its moral clarity. Um, but having said that, there's certainly an argument that not enough is being done, and it will be interesting to assess how the history that is unfolding today and the actions that we are collectively taking as a global community in the context of Ukraine meet a future standard. And if our conversation in this episode accomplishes anything, it may be the point that there never is one standard. Now, if you're listening to this and you're interested in learning more, or if you work with a company that is grappling with some of these issues that we've covered, uh, reach out to us at info at historyfactory.com. We work with a lot of companies in this capacity and are happy to discuss how we may be able to help. 
Okay, that concludes this episode. Our next episode of History Factory Plugged In will lighten it up a little bit. We're going to talk to our friend Neil Dahlstrom, who is the historian at Deer and Company, as in John Deere. Neil and I are going to talk about his new book that came out this year called Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the Birth of Modern Agriculture. So stay tuned for that in a couple of weeks. Until then, I'm Jason Dressel. Thanks for listening to History Factory Plugged In. Be well.